Look, we are continuing in our uh, devotions series, which I'm really excited about. I love the idea of being devoted. Uh, you know, if, if you look up that word, it's something that I've just been curious about. What, is, what does it mean to be devoted? And it means to, to love or to be loyal to or to have an enthusiasm for a person, an activity, or a cause, right? And so maybe you're devoted to your spouse. I'm devoted to, to my wife, Amy, there on the, on the front row. Can, can we just appreciate Amy? It's been a long time since she's been here in this auditorium. We grew up in this house, so it's, it's a homecoming for us, you know, so I'm just thankful for her. And by the way, we're on mission together. I'm, man, I'm, I couldn't do what I'm doing in Ocean Springs and as in this role that I've been given without her. She's, she's my, my partner in crime, if you will. And so, um, but that being said, uh, we're devoted to our families and we're devoted to work. We're devoted to our kids, right? And those are all good things to be devoted to. And, and I wouldn't want to encourage you to be any less devoted than you are. You want to be more devoted to, to your wife and your kids. But there's some things that sometimes we fail to be devoted to as believers that God has called us to be devoted to. And one of those things is his word. See, we know God more through his word. We grow in Christ more through his word. And so the goal of this series, Devotions, is ultimately to learn how to better explore and apply God's word to our lives so that we could be more devoted followers of Jesus. If you look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, it says that all scripture, we're talking about the word of God here, is breathed out by God, right? It's alive because he breathed it. It's active because he animates the word in our lives. So the, the scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for some things, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And this is for you two ladies. They just use that one word there just to simplify things. But this is for all of us. We're to be completed and equipped for the work of the ministry that God has called us to so we can know him more, grow in Christ, and be equipped to go in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's our mission here at Northwood Church until Jesus returns. And the word is one of the key ways that God enables us to do those things. Now, we want to, to create like a, a framework that will be easy for you to begin to apply a devotional life uh, in, in your, you know, Monday through Saturday, not just here on Sunday morning, right? Because Sunday morning is easy. Somebody's just walking you through it. But what, what, who's walking you through it, you know, tomorrow morning? And, and so we wanted to lay out kind of like a little, a little template. And so there's three questions that we'll ask not only on Sunday mornings, but also that you should ask when you approach the Word of God. And one of those is, what do I learn about God? Now, the first thing I want to tell you about God is that uh, sometimes we think about God as some nebulous, like, like eternal creator out there in the, in the cosmos, right? And that, that is true. He's out there, but he's also right here. He's all present, and, and he is actually three persons in one God. And when we talk about God, we're talking about God the Father, we're talking about God the Son, and we're talking about God the Spirit. And so whenever you're reading and asking that question, what do I learn about God? You could be learning about any one of the parts or persons of God, right? And so what do I learn about God? What do I learn about people? Right? How do people think? How do people act and feel? And it's not just those people. It's this person. <laughs> How do I behave? What, what, is, what motivates me? What is in me that's you know, not like what God's calling me to? What is in me that is? And, and all of these things. And so that's the second question. What do I learn about people? And then three, what does God want me to do? How does God want me to behave? How does God want me to live my life? What does he want me to give myself to? And, and so 
you might have 15 minutes maybe on a Monday morning or a Wednesday morning or whenever that is. And if you're like us, you're trying to get up before the day wakes you up. You want to wake the day up, by the way. Don't let the day wake you up. And, and so the way the day wakes us up is when three kids come barreling down the hallway and they're like, give me food. Dress me now. And I'm like, I'm still sleeping. <laughs> and so um, if I would get up a little earlier, I'd have a little more margin to be more devoted. But whether the kids are, you know, pulling on your shirt or they're still sleeping in their beds, you've got to find this time. And, and these three questions are going to really help you do that uh, with clarity and focus. And there's also a few other resources that we wanted to give you that would help you in that little devotional time that you might have. And uh, we listed them actually over the last several weeks, and we're not going to put that up right now, but if you go to northwood.church slash podcast, you can actually review some of the old messages that we've been through over the last month, and you'll hear all of these resources. But we're going to borrow from a few of those today. And, uh, and one of the resources is the One Year Bible. Now, this is really what the series is built on. And we're reading the One Year Bible together as a church. And so whatever we read that week leading up to that Sunday, we're going to be talking about that following Sunday. So today I'm talking about what we read in the one-year Bible this past week. And one of the, uh, the, some of the scriptures that we have approached in the last week are found in the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews today, we're focused on chapter 3. But, but before we look at chapter 3, we're just going to get a little summary uh, of, of the book of Hebrews because that's going to help us understand how to think about what the author of this book is trying to tell us, Right. And so I go to BibleHub.com. That was one of the resources we recommended. And in BibleHub.com, I just go to Hebrews 3, select summary, and I got this right from there. We, we, we borrowed this right from that website. And it says this, Hebrews was written mainly to the Hebrew believers. The author is anonymous, although either Paul or Barnabas is traditionally accepted as the author. It was written approximately 67 A.D., its purpose, and I love this part of the summary, its purpose was to present the Lord Jesus Christ as perfect and superior. Perfect and superior in comparison to anything that Judaism and the Old Covenant had to offer. Now, that, that, those two words, perfect and superior, I want you to remember those because this is a summary, but it's literally going to set the trajectory for how we think about these scriptures. You're going to hear that come up again. The author was writing to a group of Christians who were under intense persecution, and some, some were contemplating a return to Judaism. He admonished the author, or in other words, urged. He urged those believers not to turn away from their only hope of salvation. Their only hope of salvation. So this summary really helps set the tone for how we're going to read these scriptures today. And, and before we even get there, again, if you were to look at Hebrews chapter 1 and 2, you would find that it does just that. It sets the tone for defining how Jesus is the only hope of salvation. And so if you were reading along with us, you would have been getting that point. And we start chapter 3 in verse 1 where it says, therefore. And so it's saying, in light of all of that, which I've just told you in these last two ch chapters, that Jesus is your only hope of salvation, in light of that, behave this way. Think this way. Live this way. And so before we get into these verses, what I like to do, and by the way, you could do this on a Monday morning or a Wednesday morning as you're getting into the Word, I like to pray and just ask God to help, right? So why don't we do that? Let's ask God to help. Father, we just thank you. We thank you for your Word that is alive and active. God, we are asking that you would uh, cause it to penetrate our hearts 
Lord, that you would cause it to seep deeply into whatever place in our heart that's been untouched by your word. God, that seeds of faith would, would germinate and, and begin to bear fruit. God, that you would cause our hearts to come to life, that we would be trained, corrected, encouraged, whatever it is that you desire for us today, Lord, we desire it because it's your will. And so open our, the eyes of our hearts to your word. Let us hear your word today in Jesus' name. Amen. And so again, in verse 1, he says, Therefore, holy brothers... You who share in a heavenly calling, consider, or if you were to go look at that same BibleHub.com, I went to the, the Strong's Concordance and found what that word consider means. It says, means set your focus on. So consider or set your focus on Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Now, the author goes on, and you can see he's kind of going to begin distinguishing Jesus from Moses. And he says, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. So the, the, the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Can, can I just pause for a second? Have you ever gone to your neighbor's house and, and looked at maybe the new, the new facade they put on the front and said, wow, house, you did a really good job updating yourself. Or, or you went to another neighbor who, who built a beautiful home and you said, wow, wow, house, you really put yourself together well. Great job. No. You say, man, my neighbor's really done some great things to that house. You say, wow, that builder really built a wonderful, beautiful house. You give credit to the builder of the house. And here we're saying that Jesus gets the credit for building the house. Verse 5 says, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken of later. But Christ, again, he's distinguishing Christ from Moses, but Christ is faithful over God's house, over it as a son, not a servant, but a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, we got a second therefore, in light of those things, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, talk about an inspired word, the Holy Spirit speaking this now. Today, if you hear his voice referring to our shepherd, our, our Jesus, do not Harden your hearts as in how they did in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Don't, don't do that. That's what the Holy Spirit's saying. Don't do that. <laughs> Therefore, for the last time in our reading today, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They've not known my ways, and I'm, I'm imagining God being grieved over this. I'm imagining God being saddened by this reality. And he continues, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, here the author of Hebrews switches back from what God was saying to now what he's saying by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, take care then, brothers lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, 
as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so we ask the first question. What do we learn here about God? God the Father, about God the Son, Jesus, about God the Spirit, right? We, what do we learn about God? Well, the first thing that we want to address is that Jesus is our faithful mediator. See, in verse 1, it said, Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So, in other words, your Moses was faithful, Hebrews, but our Jesus is most faithful. Now, we said Jesus is our faithful mediator, and faithful is pretty clear, but we haven't yet seen this word mediator in the verse, and so where do we get that conclusion from? Well, Let's walk through this for just a moment. What we do see is two phrases. One's apostle of our confession, and two is high priest of our confession. The apostle of our confession, apostle, comes from this word that means ambassador or one who is sent. And, and so Jesus is being called the apostle of our confession, one who is sent with this confession for us. And, and what we're going to do now is we're going to use a couple, other cross, a couple other resources that we've talked about in this series, and one of them is called a cross-reference you might find those in a study Bible. You can find those in certain websites and commentaries. Just a regular Bible oftentimes even has cross-references. As a matter of fact, I prefer to have one that does. And so we're going to refer to John chapter 20, which has to do with this verse. In John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus says, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, right, apostle, as I am an ambassador, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And so we do see that people are sent. Moses was sent. The early church fathers are sent. And God is still sending people today. God is still sending people with his word, with the confession, to be stewards of that. But Jesus, the sent one of God, is not a, just a full man that was sent. He's a full God. He is fully God and was sent in the likeness, in the flesh of man. And so he is a superior and perfect apostle. Right? I told you those words were going to come back, perfect and superior. Now, we also look at high priest. So we've got one that is sent. What is the high priest? Well, the high priest is one who pleads our cause with God. He's the go-between between man and God who offers sacrifice that leads to reconciliation. So in the Old Testament, God instituted the sacrificial system that was intended to uh, uh, and give people access to forgiveness, access to his mercy, access even to his presence. And, and it was God's intent to restore the brokenness of humanity that came through the sin nature in the garden. And he used the, the sacrificial system for a season to do that. And there was somebody called a high priest that would be used to make sacrifice in order to reconcile or make right people's relationship with God. And now, Jesus is said to be the high priest of our confession. In Hebrews, another cross-reference, chapter 2, just the chapter before this one, verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. In other words, he came in the flesh and was subject to the temptation that you're subject to. He had to be made like us, so he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make Big theological word here, but real simple meaning. Propitiation for the sins of the people. What does propitiation mean? It means something that is done to offer mercy, to show favor, or to bring a pardon to a person. And it's 
it's, reflect, it's re reflected as a, a shedding of blood. So when the animal sacrifice would have been made, that's propitiation so that mercy could come to the people. And now here's Jesus, the perfect and superior high priest who makes sacrifice, sheds blood, makes propitiation to bring mercy to a people. And the most wonderful thing about all of it is that he sacrifices himself. Jesus is the perfect and superior high priest. Now, his being apostle and high priest, let's get back to the, the, the thing that we said we learn about God. He's our mediator who's faithful. Being an apostle who is sent and a high priest who reconciles relationship with God is summarized as being mediator. So me and Amy, we just made 12 years of marriage, all right? Yeah, we're doing good, and we've got you know our fourth on the way, and we've learned a lot over the last 12 years, but in the first one or two years, it was rough. <laughs> Woo, it was so bad. <laughs> I mean, I love her, you know, and, and it was great. I mean, we were, you know, meant to be together, of course, but we had a lot of rough edges, a lot of work to do in our own lives so that we could be the best that we could be for one another. And so there was a lot of differences in the way that we view life, right? And so what we did was we invited some precious friends of ours to our table and said, hey, we are jacked up and we need some help. And <laughs> by the way, I do recommend if, if you're jacked up and need some help, invite some precious, you know, reliable friends to your table because they can help. As a matter of fact, those friends throughout a number of dinners helped us sort through some of our challenges, some of our differences, right? And that's what a mediator does. They're one who resolves differences between people who have disputes. And we had some disputes, didn't we? They were, they were man, we were... It was a, like a year of dispute. <laughs> and, and so we got some mediation, and that's ultimately what we see Christ doing for us, mediating between our brokenness and our sin nature and a holy God. And, and it says this in another cross-references, First uh, Timothy chapter 2. It says there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. One mediator. There's nothing else that can reconcile your relationship with God. There's nothing else that can make your relationship with God whole and healed. There's nothing that can bring you forgiveness. There's nothing that can bring you salvation except for the mediator that is Christ Jesus. And anything short of Jesus is not enough. We need to settle that in our hearts. And so we need a mediator, and we have him in Jesus. But Jesus is not just our faithful mediator. The second thing we learn about God is that Jesus is the Messiah. If you go back to verses 5 and 6, it says that Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. Now, we're going to talk about the whole house issue here in just a moment, but I want to turn your attention first to this name that we hear Jesus being referred to. First name Jesus, last name Christ, right? Isn't that the way it goes? No? That's not what it's on his birth certificate, huh? Okay. So, so Christ, let me just clarify this real quick. I was, you know, having a conversation with my kids about this the other day. They needed some clarity as well. And so we're just, this is just one of those things you got to sort through sometimes. Look, the name Christ is actually not Jesus' last name. It's, it's, it's more of an identifier of his, of his purpose, his identity, who he is, more so than it is his name, right? 
And, and so when you look at the word Christ, it comes from the Greek word Christos, Christ. And, and what that word means is anointed one, anointed one. Somebody who is set apart for the purpose of doing something unique and distinct, anointed for a special work. Jesus was and is the Christ. Now, we say Jesus is the Messiah. How do we get there? Well, because Christ is simply the Greek translation of what Messiah is in the Hebrew. Messiah, Mashiach, that is the one, the anointed one that the Hebrews, the Jews, were waiting on for thousands of years. There would be one who would come and, and, and crush the head of the serpent, who would deliver God's people out of bondage and captivity, who would uh, set up a, a, a rule and reign that they would come under with protection and power and authority. They were waiting on this Messiah, and Jesus comes as the Messiah. He is the sent one who is a high priest, who is the promised Messiah. And he did come to set the captives free, and it is him who rules and reigns over God's house. And the most beautiful thing, I love this part of it. The word clearly says, you are God's house. If you put your trust in Jesus, if you have faith in him, his perfect, complete work, he accomplished on the cross at Calvary. You say, yes, Lord, that's me. You are his holy habitation. You are where he chooses to dwell over and in. But he is over. He rules and reigns over his house. As a matter of fact, uh, one commentator said that Christ enters his father's house as the master over it, but Moses as a servant in it. Jesus is master. He's Lord. He's over us. Jesus, the son, is superior to Moses, the servant. Now, this is an important thing that we're saying because you might be like, okay, cool. Jesus is superior over Moses. I never thought that much of Moses in the first place. What's the point, right? Well, the, the people that he was writing to, one of the benefits of getting this historical context, a summary, is we know he was writing to Hebrew believers that believed that Moses was the man, the anointed one of God that was sent to do all these things. And he did in that season, but not in the way that God ultimately intended the Messiah to do. They looked at Moses with great reverence, almost on equal footing. He was a prophet. And, and, and so, you know, when, when Jesus came, they, it was the same as Moses. Not, not that Jesus was greater than Moses. And here, the author of Hebrews is saying, no, he's greater than Moses. He's over Moses. Moses, servant. God, uh, Jesus, son of God. So the distinction is kind of important here. And Jesus, who's superior to Moses in three ways that we want to highlight today. One, he owns the house of God. I know some of us don't like to be thought of as being owned. <laughs> like, I'm not, I'm not anybody's. I don't belong to anybody. Well, you know what? I hope you believe that you belong to Jesus. Because there's maybe no one else that you want to belong to in that way, but we want to belong to Jesus. So he owns the house of God. He rules the house of God. Does he? Does he rule this house? I have to ask myself that question when I'm reading the word. Does he, is he Lord over my life? And he provides for the house of God. And that should be encouraging. A lot of us love to skip to that part. Yes, Lord, you're going to provide his favor. Just blessed. Yes, it's awesome. And, and, and it's true, though. We don't want to skip those other things. But, but God provides. God provides for his people. He provides for his household, and we are his house. So think about this for just a moment. If, if 
if a tenant lives in a home, so some of you might rent in here, and, and you live in, an, in a home or an apartment or something like that, and you have permission, right, to maybe hang some things on the wall, you might even get permission to paint the room that you're in, or, or man, you could do little things here and there, right? You even have a key to that house. So the, the tenant does have a degree of autonomy and authority, and, and so there's something to be said about that, but, but the owner has the deed to the house. It belongs to him. And one of the things that I love about the fact that we're the house of God in Christ is that Jesus literally has a deed to our hearts. He has a deed to your heart. You belong to him. He might give you some autonomy where you have the liberty to to unlock some doors and and you can paint some walls and hang some pictures and maybe change some curtains and all that. He he wants us to be creative and express our lives as as individuals, but, but he holds the deed to your heart. You are not your own. And I think that's important for us. Now, for 2,000 years, people have wrestled with this confession that Jesus is Messiah. And in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus was talking to his disciples, and he asked them, he said, Who do you say that I am? And Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of the living God. Peter passed the test. He got the answer right. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He said, nobody convinced you of that. He said, you didn't read a book that convinced you of that. It was literally a word born in his heart from the Father of creation, from God himself, that gave him revelation to be able to say that Jesus is Messiah. And the same word, the same faith is born in your heart for you to be able to say the same thing, that Jesus is Messiah. The question has to be asked, though, is that your confession? Is Jesus your Messiah? Did he save your life from the pit of hell? from death and destruction. If he's the mediator, if he's able to do those things, then you know what? Well, we should have hope. We should be a people of hope, don't you think? One commentator says, and, and this is good if you ever had any doubt about any of these things, that the word of our apostle, Jesus, is a sure word because it is a word carried by God himself, meaning Jesus is God. The atoning work of our high priest, the atoning is that whole idea about shedding of blood to pay for the price of the sin, right, that that brings mercy. The atoning work of our high priest on the cross is a finished and all-sufficient work because it has infinite value as the work of God himself. Consider this about Jesus. He made Moses, and he made you. He is the perfect and superior high priest, Apostle, mediator, Messiah, Jesus is that one. And so we can hope in him. And there's no other hope. If you try to put hope in your health, your physical body, how many of you got a bad back? Man, you, you can't hope in this thing. It's, it's decaying over time. I mean, we're going to steward it to the best of our ability while we got the thing, right? But, but it's decaying. How about, how about this economy? You know, people starting to get anxious about the economy, right? And understandably, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of volatility out there. Now, I, have, I, have, I have legitimate concerns about where things are headed, but if I put my hope in the economy, that volatility is never going to disappear. It's just going to swing from one way to the other way. It's always going to be volatile. The economy is the world's economy. It's not God's economy. And so if I put my hope in it, it's sure to fail me. How about Tuesday? 
Anybody excited for Tuesday? You're either going to double down on the people that you already believe are the right people for the job, or you're going to fire them and try to hire some new people, right? We put our hope in the election. What, what is that? We're putting our hope in people, in elected officials. Man, it's, it's the God of all creation. He made Moses. He made you. He made the politicians. It's the God of all creation who rules and reigns. And if we put our hope in the system rather than putting our hope in the Savior, we will be let down in a very profound way. Jesus is the Messiah who remains our faithful mediator. Now, the second question <laughs> What do I learn about people? What do I learn about people? Well, besides the fact that in Christ we have salvation, besides the fact that you have a heavenly calling on your life, besides the fact that we are his house and that being his holy habitation, a holy God dwelling within us makes us holy people, besides the fact that you're holy brothers and sisters, all good things. <laughs> but the main focus that we want to talk about here is that people are prone to have evil and unbelieving hearts. Ooh, flipped the script a little bit. <laughs> Change directions. Yeah, and I know we don't like to think about people that way. Evil. People are so evil. No, we, we like to think more life-giving, right? People are good-natured, kind. We love people. Everybody's great, wonderful, right? You look at a person long enough, look, <laughs> my little baby kids, right, that haven't been exposed to the crazy things in this world, right, they're evil, okay? I just, I just want to tell you from the jump, if you didn't know, Verse 12 says, take care. In other words, beware or, or be cautious. Take care lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So yes, people are evil. And here, interestingly, evil is tied to unbelief. And it's where our hearts turn away from the living God when in our stubbornness we refuse to believe God. He talked about the, the hardening of their hearts in the day of testing. It's, it's this moment in this narrative of God's redemptive plan for humanity where he intended to redeem his people, but they hardened their hearts. And really, that's the whole narrative of all the Bible, which is God loving his people, his people rebelling, God making a way to, to reconcile relationship with them, his people saying thank you, and then rebelling again, and then God doing it over and over again. And in the wilderness, after God delivered them out of bondage in, in, in Egypt, they're, they're traveling through the wilderness, just groaning and moaning and complaining and, and just doubting God, which is natural. We do that, right? And, and they hardened their hearts as their hearts were tested in that trial. And they became rebellious to God. One, one commentary talks about the hardening of hearts this way. It says, turning the deaf ear to the calls and counsels of Christ. Have you ever felt like God was leading you to do something that obviously was Christ-like? It was obviously him and you just kept resisting it? If you let that go long enough, that you, know, you could say in that moment, you're like, well, I just wasn't sure, I just this, I just... But you keep resisting the voice of God in your life and it leads to a hardening in the heart. Another commentary says this, Christ is faithful, therefore we ought not to be faithless as our fathers were under Moses. See, it's all about faith. Faith is what pleases God. Faith 
is, is what prompts us, what provokes us in our hearts to, to listen for God's voice. And, and that when we hear it, we believe it. We believe his promises. We believe his instruction. We say, yes, Lord. Amen, Lord. It's faith that causes that to happen to us. And you know where faith comes from? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Aren't you glad we're doing a series called Devotions to teach us to hear better from the word of God? Aren't you thankful for faithful teachers and preachers of the word here at Northwood Church? Man, I'm so thankful for Pastor Jordan and his, his, his desire to just be faithful to teach the word. And Pastor Van is sitting here on the front row, has done it for over 30 years, faithfully teaching and preaching the word of God. Man, we just should give praise to God real quick for just faithful men who teach the word. Because it breeds faith in our hearts. And when we believe what God says, God the Spirit indwells us. He leads us. And it's not unto hardening and rebellion, but he leads us unto truth and righteousness. And that's what I desire for my life. I want to live a true life that honors God that's righteous. And so we need the word. We need his spirit. We need faith that rises up, and those are worthy prayers. We should, we should pray that God would give us hunger for those things and, and that he would produce that faith in our life. Now, the third and last question, we've learned about God, we've learned about people. The third and last question is, what does God want me to do? Well, verse 1 says, keep considering or focusing on Jesus. I, I would say that's a good one. Uh, verse 6 says, hold fast your confidence and hope. Don't let it go. That's a good one. But... What we really want to focus on is this, that God wants us to exhort one another while we have the chance. Now, verse 13 says, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, that word exhort is a little bit of like a Bible word, right? You rarely hear that in the English language. You'll hear it in church, but I want to just clarify. It's super simple. To exhort or exhortation simply means to encourage or encouragement. How about that? So we need to encourage one another every day, not some days, not Sunday alone, Monday through Saturday and Sunday, all days, every day. We need to encourage one another because sin is crouching at our door. That's what God told Abel, Cain, in the Bible, in Genesis. That's what, that's what happens when we leave our door just slightly ajar and God is saying, if you're not careful, sin's crouching at your door. Do you get any dog or cat lovers, right? Man, I don't love either. I'm allergic. So I just, man, bless you for being able to have those. But <laughs> you crack that door open, and, and what do they want to do? In or out, one of the two, they're waiting at the door. And sin's the same way, just waiting at the door. And and we're told to exhort one another. Do you know that there's no greater expression of friendship than a friend's exhortation, in my opinion? I mean, you could serve me, and you could high-five me. You could feed me. Now, that's a good one. <laughs> you could bless me. You could do all these different things, right? But when you exhort me or encourage me in my faith, I appreciate you at that whole nother level. And, and so the question becomes, who's encouraging you? Do you have that friend in your life? Who's encouraging you not to waver from the truth of the gospel? Who's encouraging you to shut the door on the sin in your life? Who's encouraging you to hold fast your confession, to continue to consider Jesus 
our mediator and Messiah. Who is encouraging you? I was sitting around with some, some brothers and sisters Friday night, hanging out in a group, because we do groups here at Northwood Church. It's a pretty big deal. We're about to end our group semester, but in February we'll be relaunching. And if you haven't been in a group, man, you're missing out, because Friday night we're just sitting around preaching the gospel to one another, just encouraging one another, just exhorting each other. Just, I left that place so encouraged. And, and, and maybe you need encouragement in this season, but maybe some of you are encouraged. Who are you exhorting? Are you encouraging others? Every day, we are called to exhort one another in the faith, to hold fast to the confession, to continue to run the race with endurance. This is the mandate on the body of believers. He says, exhort one another as long as it is called today. Today really was talking about this idea of the, the day of grace, which isn't just a day. It's an it's a era in the kingdom. And, and this day of grace is this moment in time where through the, the man, God, Christ Jesus, and his perfect and completed work on the cross, by his grace and his mercy, we actually have access to salvation and reconciliation with the Father. To our, our relationship, that thing that was broken by sin can now be made whole. We can no longer be aliens and strangers, but now friends and sons and daughters of the living God. Jesus did that, but there's a day of grace, and it actually has an expiration date. The era ends when you die or when Christ returns. I don't mean to be an alarmist or to create some sense of urgency to be sensational in this moment. That's not my heart, but I have to tell you the truth. And there's a period of time that will wrap up where the day of grace will no longer be available. And he says, not only do we want to encourage one another, hold fast, persevere, continue on. Don't quit. Don't go weary in well-doing. We want to do that during this period of time. But also, if we've not yet come to know God's grace, now is the day. Today. And I think that some of us have been waiting for something. I know I was before I surrendered my life to Christ. I was waiting on something. I was like, I ain't ready yet. I still kind of want to do these things over here is really what it came down to. I, well, you, you want to know what it really came down to? I'm still God of my life. And I'm not willing to let you be. But today is the day of grace. Today is the day that we should surrender. Today is the day that we should surrender new again if we've been in Christ but have maybe been distracted or if we've never been in Christ at all. Today is the day to surrender. In our marriages, in our responsibilities, in all of life, we should confess, Jesus, you are our only hope. And so I lay everything down at your feet in this moment, today. I'm exhorting you. That's what's happening right now. Receive it. And let's go before our Jesus with expectation that he can provide, because he provides for his house, everything that you could possibly need or hope for. And so, what are your next steps in this place? Like I said, put your faith in Jesus. Put your trust in Jesus. It's, it's pretty simple. You could say a prayer, something like this. I believe everything that man up there just said, Lord. <laughs> I trust you with my life. Forgive me. I want to live for you now. That could be your next step. Pray that prayer. 
If you do pray that prayer, here's another next step for you. Grab that little uh, uh, what's next card out of the seat pocket in front of you. Fill it out and say, hey, I just, I just decided to follow Jesus and bring it to the back of the room after service. And, and that's a really good next step because you know what you need? A community of believers that can continue to exhort you, to encourage you in your faith day by day, every day. So we'll do that. You know, not banging at your door, like acting all weird and stuff, but we just want to help you know how to get connected. Or maybe your next step is, is repentance. Just saying, God, I've been, I'm saved, but I've been living a life that doesn't reflect that. I haven't been trusting you as Lord. I haven't been bringing my, I haven't been confessing my sin. I haven't been trusting you with my needs, with my trials, with, my, with the battles that I'm walking through. I haven't been trusting you, Lord. I just, I repent for that, Lord, and I just, I bring it all back to your feet. Maybe that's where you're at today. Maybe you, maybe you need to pray, God, restore hope to my heart. Restore hope to my heart. Restore faith to my heart that I believe you again for what I once believed you for. Return me to the joy of your salvation. If you need to pray that prayer, you can pray that prayer while sitting in your seat, or there's going to be a, a number of people here at the front of the auditorium that are going to be ready to pray with you. Come get some prayer. Let this brother or sister exhort you in your faith and pray with you and for you. Right? Maybe that's your next step. Or maybe your next step is to just stand to your feet and lift praise. And lift your hands and your heads to heaven where your help comes from and exalt the one who is worthy. Why don't you guys do that with me now? Let's, let's stand to our feet and we're going to pray and then we're going to worship. And uh, I'm just believing that, um, that God's not done encouraging you in this place this morning. And so open your hearts up to whatever encouragement it is that he has for you today. I hope you're encouraged already, but God's not done with you yet. So let's continue to lean in. Father, we just thank you for salvation. We thank you for healing. We thank you for your, your grace and your mercy. God, we just pray this morning, God, that you will continue to encourage us in our faith. Lord, that we would look to the one that has no other that's comparable. Jesus, there's no one beside you. You are still. Stand, sitting at the right hand of the Father right now, interceding, praying on our behalf. And we're asking that you would take our prayers, bring them to the Father's ear and say, God, help our children. Help these sons and daughters that you've given to me. Lord, help us this morning. God, just bring healing in this place. God, bring confidence and hope in this place. And we give you all praise and glory for it now in Jesus' name. Come on, let's worship.